You're listening to the Tutan Children Podcast. Tonight's motivation will be from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Purpose of life. One great question underlies our experience, whether we think about it consciously or not. What is the purpose of life? I have considered this question and would like to share my thoughts in the hope that they may be of direct practical benefit for those who read them. I believe that the purpose of life is to be happy. From the moment of birth, every human being wants happiness and does not want suffering. Neither social conditioning, nor education, nor ideology affect this. From the very core of our being, we simply desire contentment. I don't know whether the universe, with its countless galaxies, stars, and planets, has a deep meaning or not, but at the very least, it is clear that we humans who live on this earth face the task of making a happy life for ourselves. Therefore, it is important to discover what will bring about the greatest degree of happiness. For a start, it is possible to divide every kind of happiness and suffering into two main categories mental and physical. Of the two, it is the mind that exerts the greatest influence on most of us. Unless we are either gravely ill or deprived of basic necessities, our physical condition plays a secondary role in life. If the body is content, we virtually ignore it. The mind, however, registers every event, no matter how small. Hence, we should devote our most serious efforts to bring about mental peace. From my own limited experience, I have found that the greatest degree of tranquility comes from the development of love and compassion. The more we care for the happiness of others, the greater our own sense of well-being becomes. Cultivating a close, warm-hearted feeling for others automatically puts the mind at ease. This helps remove whatever fears or insecurities we may have and gives us the strength to cope with any obstacles we encounter. It is the ultimate source of success in life. As long as we live in this world, we are bound to encounter problems. If at such times we lose hope and become discouraged, we diminish our ability to face difficulties. If on the other hand, we remember that it is not just ourselves but everyone who has to undergo suffering. This more realistic perspective will increase our determination and capacity to overcome troubles. Indeed, with this attitude, each new obstacle can be seen as yet another valuable opportunity to improve our mind. Thus, we can strive gradually to become more compassionate. That is, we can develop both genuine sympathy for others suffering and the will to help remove their pain. As a result, our own serenity and inner strength will increase. Some of my friends have told me that, while love and compassion are marvelous and good, they are not really very relevant. Our world, they say, is not a place where such beliefs have much influence or power. They claim that anger and hatred are so much a part of human nature that humanity will always be dominated by them. I do not agree. We humans have existed in our present form for about 100,000 years. I believe that if during this time 
the human mind has been primarily controlled by anger and hatred, our overall population would have decreased. But today, despite all our wars, we find that the human population is greater than ever. This clearly indicates to me that love and compassion predominate in the world. And this is why unpleasant events are news. Compassionate activities are so much part of daily life that they are taken for granted and therefore largely ignored. True compassion is not just an emotional response, but a firm commitment founded on reason. Therefore, a truly compassionate attitude towards others does not change even if they behave negatively. Of course, developing this kind of compassion is not at all easy. Let, as a start, let us consider the following facts. Whether people are beautiful and friendly or unattractive and disruptive, ultimately they are human beings just like oneself. Like oneself, they want happiness and do not want suffering. Furthermore, the right to overcome suffering and be happy is equal to one's own. Now, when you recognize that all beings are equal in both their desire for happiness and the right to obtain it, you automatically feel empathy and closeness for them. Through accustoming your mind to this sense of universal altruism, you develop a feeling of responsibility for others. The wish to help them actively overcomes their problems. Nor is this wish selective. It applies equally to all. As long as they are human beings experiencing pleasure and pain just as you do, there is no logical basis to discriminate between them or to alter your concern for them if they behave negatively. Let me emphasize that it is within your power, given patience and time, to develop this kind of compassion. Of course, our self-centeredness, our distinctive attachment to the feeling of an independent, self-existent person works fundamentally to inhibit our compassion. Indeed, true compassion can be experienced only when this type of self-grasping is eliminated. But this does not mean that we cannot start and make progress now. We should begin by removing the greatest hindrances to compassion, anger and hatred. As we all know, these are extremely powerful emotions and they can overwhelm our entire mind. Nevertheless, they can be controlled. If, however, they are not, these negative emotions will plague us with no extra effort on their part and impede our quest for the happiness of a loving mind. I must emphasize again that merely thinking that compassion and reason and patience are good will not be enough to develop them. We must wait for difficulties to arise and then attempt to practice them. And who creates such opportunities? Not our friends, of course, but our enemies. They are the ones who give us the most trouble. So if we truly wish to learn, we should consider our enemies to be our best teachers. For the person who cherishes compassion and love, the practice of tolerance is essential. And for that, an enemy is indispensable. So we should feel gratitude to our enemies for it is they who can best help us to develop a tranquil mind. Also, it is often the case in both personal and public life that with a change in circumstances, enemies become friends. 
The trouble is that when things in the world go well for us, we become confident that we can manage by ourselves and feel we do not need friends. But as our status and health decline, we quickly realize how wrong we were. This is the moment when we learn who is really helpful and who is really useless. So to prepare for that moment, to make genuine friends who will help us when the need arises, we ourselves must cultivate altruism. Individual happiness can contribute in a profound and effective way to the overall improvement of our entire human community. Because we all share an identical need for love, it is possible to feel that anybody we meet, in whatever circumstances, is a brother or a sister. No matter how new the face or how different the dress and behavior, there is no significant division between us and other people. It is foolish to dwell on external differences because our basic natures are the same. Ultimately, humanity is one and this small planet is our own home. If we are to protect this home of ours, each of us needs to experience a vivid sense of universal altruism. It is only this feeling that can remove the self-centered motives that cause people to deceive and misuse one another. If you have a sincere and open heart, you naturally feel self-worth and confidence, and there is no need to be fearful of others. I believe that every, every level of society, familial, tribal, national, and international, the key to a happier and more successful world is the growth of compassion. We do not need to become religious, nor do we need to believe in an ideology. All that is necessary is for each of us to develop our good human qualities. I try to treat whoever I meet as an old friend. This gives me a genuine feeling of happiness. It is the practice of compassion. So going into a new year, may we all practice compassion and try to develop it within ourselves so that we may spread it throughout the world to all sentient beings. Okay, so I'm going to begin a teaching now that Venerable Children has been going through, and I'm going to be doing a review. So I want you to listen to this. The way this whole thing evolves is first there is a moment of valid mind that has the appearance of a truly existent eye. I'm walking. The moment after that, the innate eye grasping appears. The innate eye grasping is the eye grasping that goes from one birth to the next. It's very deeply ingrained. The continuity of that valid mind that apprehends eye does not become the innate eye grasping. First you have a moment of validity apprehending the eye. Then the innate eye-grasping arises, thinking that the eye exists as it appears. The mind apprehending the conventionally existing eye and the eye that is grasped at by the innate eye-grasping are difficult to distinguish because true existence appears to both of them. However, only the innate eye-grasping is grasping at that true existence. The valid mind is not. Now, did everybody understand that? Okay. Now I had to read this five different times before I even started to realize, to understand what it was saying. So, don't worry about it. Okay? Venable gave us some questions from the teachings. We're going to go over those teachings. 
But one thing she did say was, new students should know that to arrive at this subtle point of being able to distinguish the conventionally existent I and the inherently existent <coughs> one, in other words, what I just talked about, Meditators have observed the self-grasping of persons and phenomena in their own mental continuum for a long time. They've studied treatises and sutras. They know the different levels of subtlety and they can identify them clearly. For us to identify when we're having a valid mind apprehending I and when we are having an I grasping, that's difficult to distinguish between the mere I that exists dependently and the inher inherently existent I. That's also difficult. It's all difficult, so don't worry about it, okay? Okay, so. <laughs> There's that. We're going through the teachings of Precious Garland. And tonight's review, I'm going to read you real quickly the paragraphs that I, the verses that I used to answer these questions. Verse 28. Ultimately, the notion I exist and what is mine exists are false, because from the perspective of knowing things as they truly are, there is neither I nor mine. The aggregates arise from eye-grasping. The eye-grasping is ultimately unreal. How then can there really be any arising of that whose seed is unreal? Depending upon a mirror, the reflection of one's face is seen, but it does not ultimately exist at all. Likewise, depending on the aggregates, eye-grasping exists. But that eye does not truly exist, just like the reflection of one's face. Without depending on the mirror, the reflection of one's face is not seen. Likewise, without depending on the aggregates, there is no notion of an eye. Having heard this kind of topic emptiness, the Arya Ananda obtained the Dharma eye. Then he himself taught this topic repeatedly to the monastics. As long as one grasps the aggregates, one will also grasp the I with regard to them. If one grasps the I, karma will be created again. And due to that karma, one will again be reborn. So those are the, those are the verses that we're going to be doing the teachings on tonight. So this is a interactive, in other words, a participatory teaching. Okay? You all are welcome and encouraged, highly, to join us. Uh, Ryder, be gentle. Thank you. <laughs> In other words, don't ask questions that I don't understand, much less know the answer to. So the first question. Explain the meaning of phenomena are ultimately false and conventionally existent. Participatory. Explain the meaning of phenomena are ultimately false and conventionally existent. This is where that comes in. Do, 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 do. Jeopardy. <laughs> That's, that's a good point, yeah. Okay, I see you. You appear to me to exist, but my mind is playing tricks on me. What I am seeing is like an illusion. Nothing inherently exists. But you're obviously sitting there. 
You exist in a conventional way. I took the time to look up the word conventional. Formed by agreement or compact, according with, sanctioned by, or based on convention. Convention means usage or custom, especially in social matters. In other words, we all took ideas and we gave them a label and we all agreed to that. Basically, if you take a tree apart, you put it in little piles. You put the wood in a pile, you put the water in a pile, you put the leaves in a pile, you put a bark in a pile. And when you get done, you have little piles. Where did the tree go? Okay. The tree was labeled on that. When we put these parts together in a specific order, we labeled it tree. This is what we were taught by our parents or whoever, because that's what they were taught, because that's what they were taught, because that's what they were taught. And it's all labeled conventionally. That's what that means. So conventionally existent, we did it. Existent means that it functions. So conventionally existent means that while it doesn't inherently exist, it does exist conventionally because that's what we all agreed to, whether we knew it or not. Yeah. So that's my explanation of it. Are there any others? Yes? I'm Oh boy. Phenomena are ultimately false because they do not, in fact, exist in the way they appear. That doesn't, however, mean that they do not exist at all. They exist conventionally as mere label designated by mind. She's very good, isn't she? <laughs> I love it. Yes, thank you, Heather. Does everybody agree with that? I think it's useful to talk about what that means. What does it mean they don't exist as they appear? Because they appear to be separate, independent, out there, existing under their own power, like radiating some quality that makes them what they are, and that's the appearance. That, that appearance is mm -hmm. what's false. Mm -hmm. right? so, so I think just for to fill in that little gap, yep. I agree to totally. the conversation would be helpful. Very nice. Yeah. Okay. Say anything else? Yeah, they appear to be um, from their own side of basis for the label we Mm-hmm. Yep. That's why I said, you're sitting there, you appear to be real to me, but sorry. But I appear to be real to me, too. <laughs> yeah, and that's where the problem lies. Yeah, that's exactly it. We all, we all say, I exist, and, and then we go about making karma because of it, and it's like, okay. And, and, just, and realizing that in the, in the Buddhist terminology, real means truly existent. Truly existent. You know, lack, it, it, there's a different definition to it. You do appear real, but it's not the way that we think That's right. means. It's looking like you exist from your own side. I just wanted to cover the first part, which, if I heard it correctly, was um, does not exist. Okay, so does not inherently exist. Inherently, can you dive into that a little bit? Inherently means exists on its own without causes and condition, all by itself. All right. You exist as a person because you have a body, you have feelings, you have a mind, you are, you are different parts and conditions. But eventually, if you start to look inside yourself, what is the I based upon? That's, that's what it is. Twenty-eight. It's one I what? Mostly twenty-eight. Okay, because the thing that comes to mind 
emptiness is empty of inherent existence, though. Did I lose you? Good. So, I'm glad you brought that up. Right. Anything that is conventionally existence is false. Anything that is from causes and conditions. They don't? Not in the sense of how we think of functional things. Because functional things are always in permanent things. It might depend on how you're using the word function. I think, yeah, I think that's probably what, yeah. You know what I mean? yeah. Come on, guys. Both of those examples are dependent. Space, like if space is an empty, is a, um, a permanent phenomenon. And it's dependent on being labeled. And emptiness. Is dependent on what is empty. The emptiness of the table is dependent on the table. Mm -hmm. So they, they are, there are other reasons why they're not ultimately existent or inherently existent. Does anybody disagree with it? Okay. Yes. I, I think for me the sticking point is the permanence that we project onto that sticking point is what has got us into this mess in the first place. <laughs> it's one of them anyways, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the four. Yeah, that's one of the four distortions, but that's another topic, please. Okay, question number two. What appears to the Arya's meditative equipoise on emptiness? What does not appear to that mind? What appears to them as a wisdom that knows the nature of all phenomena, the ultimate nature. Um, it appears phenomena as they exist. And what um, does not appear to that mind is the dependent, um, is um, that um, they do not exist in our Emptiness appears to an Arya's meditative equipose on emptiness. Conventional reality and anything else does not appear. True existence of anything does not appear because there is no true existence of anything. Nothing else appears. That's right. Yeah. Right. Right. So it's not the wisdom itself that's appearing to that mind. It's the emptiness appearing. Right. It's the emptiness. The Arya's wisdom sees reality. It knows things as they actually are. If things actually existed, when that was, then that wisdom should see inherently existent people and phenomena. The ultimate mode of existence is exactly what the Arya's wisdom of meditative equipoise perceives. So if things inherently existent, then an Arya would see those inherently existent phenomena. But the wisdom mind of the Arya is perceiving emptiness, yes. not perceiving wisdom. Yes. Emptiness appears to an Arya's meditative equipoise on emptiness. 
Someone who, uh, how, how would you say it? Yeah, someone who has realized emptiness. Directly. Directly, yes. Okay. So, did I answer that question? Okay. True existence does not appear. And, yeah, conventional phenomena does not appear. Nothing else appears. Emptiness appears. That's right. All in, <laughs> that would be an interesting channel, yeah. <laughs> uh, question number three. What is a conventional, reliable cognizer? What does it apprehend? Is it mistaken, erroneous? Does it realize emptiness? I had to break this conventional, reliable cognizer into three different parts. Okay. So conventional, we've already discussed that. All right. Reliable, um, two thumbs way, way up on correctly label a category. Correctly labeling something. Okay, I'm labeling you a person. All right. As long as it's conventional, it's not ultimately existence, but it's conventionally existence, you are a person, you function as a person. That's what it means by reliable. And the other one is cognizer, a knower, a, a, a consciousness that knows, that understands, that perceives things. Okay? So we did that. Um, so that's what a conventional reliable cognizer is. So what does it apprehend? It apprehends things that function conventionally. Does everybody understand what, what I'm trying to get at? And ultimately, it does not inherently exist. But if you see anything around you, you see Ryder, you see Larissa, that's a functioning thing. They function as people, so they're conventionally existent. Correctly. Correctly. I like that word, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, is it mistaken? Yes, it is mistaken. Why is it mistaken? Because we really do still see Larissa and Ryder as existing from their own side, having Larissa-ness and Ryder-ness within their very core of their existence. That is absolutely correct. Because things appear Is it erroneous? Not if it's a reliable No. Erroneous would be where you see a scarecrow in a field and instead of labeling it a scarecrow, you label it a real person. That would be erroneous. Yeah, you have the mistaken appearance of that. Right. And uh, does it realize emptiness? Does a conventional, reliable cognizer realize emptiness? No. No. An erroneous consciousness is when, oh, sorry, well, no, a conventional valid cognizer of ordinary beings cannot perceive the ultimate nature of phenomena. Well, let's see what she says. Because it's obscured by ignorance. Probably, yeah. yeah. In brief, conventionally existent things such as I and mind that are of the objects of a valid mind apprehending I and mind appear truly existent, although they are not. They are mistaken. They exist conventionally, nominally. They do not exist on an ultimate level. Inherently existent things that are the object of grasping eye and mind as truly existent do not exist at all. 
If they did, they would be perceived by the Arya's wisdom of meditative equipoise that perceives reality. This wisdom, however, not only does not perceive inherently existent things, but it perceives the opposite, the emptiness of inherent existence. The valid mind apprehending I in mind is a conventional valid cognizer. It is correct with respect to the conventional nature of things and knows you can use a car to go somewhere. However, it is not valid with respect to the ultimate nature because its objects do not exist as they appear. They appear inherently existence, whereas they are not. You can't ask me questions. I don't know how to answer either. Wisdom mind is a particular mind. Does that arise out of a conventional, uh, reliable cognizer, or is it separate? I, I got a little confused, but I, I couldn't. I didn't want to say totally no that the conventional mind can't realize emptiness, because the wisdom mind comes from something. Yes, it is totally separate from the conventional mind. Look, it's kind of like you're cutting up a pie differently. I just want to know when, when we're going into this, uh, when the mind is medita meditating on emptiness directly, what's, what's going on with the conventional mind? That's why I got stuck in. I don't have that information. Question number four. Explain the analogy of the reflection in the mirror. So, depending on a mirror, the reflected image of our face appears. And um, the appearance of the face is false. There's no face in the mirror. And then similarly, dependent on grasping the aggregates is truly existent. Grasping the eye is truly existent arises. But the truly existent eye that is conceived, it is the conceived object of the eye grasping doesn't exist. So just as the appearance of a real face in the mirror is false, and a mind that apprehends it as a real face is erroneous, the appearance of a truly existent eye is false, and grasping it is true is an erroneous consciousness. Exactly. I couldn't say it better than myself. <laughs> I think it's helpful to say that there may, there's no face in the mirror, but there is a reflection of the face in the mirror. Right. That's yeah. because we've got to make sure that it's not non-existent. Okay. 
Okay, so we see a face in the mirror. Unless we're a cat or a very small child, we know that it is just a reflection of a face. It doesn't inherently exist. The same is true with a person. A collection of parts does not a truly inherent person make. That's my words. But we grasp at them as if they, we in fact do inherently exist. We need to see that this person that we perceive ourselves to be is like a reflection in a mirror, not inherently existing. Yeah, I agree. Cat or people, the, well, sometimes, cat do. sometimes, you know, you walk by, even Jeffrey tells us, yeah. seeing some seedy guy across, and he yeah. thinks he's just some seedy guy, and he goes, oh, no, it's a reflection, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> no. So there's, there's that part, but, but generally, if you're looking in the mirror, and you're, you have, you know, you're over two years old, or maybe younger, um, you know that that's a reflection, and so you don't mind. So So to be able to relate to it in the same way, but not believe in it so intensely, how amazing that would be. I, I love this. And that's the thing when you depend on rising turns around. That's so, I think it's so cool, too. Because then when you'd see these things, you would know they were false, and you'd know, oh, they have to be independent of rising, because yeah. they're not autonomous under their own power, unrelated to other factors. You, it would, that would, right then, would tell you this. But I have to say that for all the years I ever looked at myself in the mirror, crimping and you know, and putting lipstick on and looking at my face and, and, and whatever, there were times where I forgot that that was just a reflection. And I had a lot of opinion mm -hmm. about that person that was in that mirror. Mm -hmm. So that's where the little bit of, it was a little harder for me to see because my relationship to that face has been a lot closer to inherently existent than I want to admit. So anyway. Now that we don't have that many mirrors around here, I can learn what it is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I was a teenager. I had a lot of investment in that face. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's why this is such a, such a great analogy to yeah. really meditate on because you know for a fact that if the light were not on and you're standing in front of that mirror, you get no reflection. Right? I mean, you have to have all of these conditions in order for that appearance to be there. Uh -huh. and, and to think that that's exactly the way we're misapprehending everything else, you know, to be able to get that we're projecting. You know, all these other causes and conditions have to be present, in, and, and our mind conceiving it is what's bringing this appearance alive, in a way. I don't know, I think it's really useful. Yeah. Useful thing to think about. That's what life seems to be like. Huh? Seems to be. Yeah, I'm still mad at Brad Pitt for what he did to Thelma and Lucinda. <laughs> <laughs> Took the money and ran.
it's not only just pixels, it's also the drama. And actually, it's our emotions too. They're not inherently existent, but we feel them. Especially the okay part. Yeah, yeah. It's very powerful because it's tied into uh, very early soothing or or harsh, but early strong parental messages about the mirror and the use of it and what it says, supposedly. <laughs> Yes. If you would go see, that was always a good little throw you around a little bit. Next question. Explain the four-point analysis to meditate on the emptiness of the eye. How does the eye appear to the innate eye-grasping mind? She did teach on this, guys. Come on now. <laughs> okay, the first one is identify the object of negation. Ask yourself, how does the eye appear to the innate eye-grasping mind? We can see this most clearly when we are angry or upset. It appears as something that is independent of, but also mixed with, the body and mind. Think about it. Yeah, yeah it does. You know, it's part of us, but separate from us. So, the next one says, next you tell yourself, if the eye truly exists, then it has to be either completely identical with the aggregates as a whole or with one of the aggregates or as something completely separate from them. There is no third choice. Think about that. Is it correct? If the eye exists, it appears. Say that again? If the eye exists as it appears, it has to be either completely one with the aggregates or yeah. completely separate. got to be either completely identical with the aggregates as a whole or with one of the aggregates. There's nothing else, there's no other choice. No. And the reason that there is no other choice is because we're talking in terms of true existence. If we were speaking in terms of just regular conventional nominal existence, then you don't have those parameters because you could have one thing dependent upon the other. But in terms of inherent existent things, they, they don't have a dependent relationship. They have to be either inherently one and the same or inherently totally different. There's no third choice. And that's what that second point is. You, you, you tell yourself and you ask yourself, is this statement I'm saying correct? Is it one or the other? And that's, and you could, that's the second step. You're not really looking at how it exists right at this moment. Just the second step is you, you convince yourself it has to be one or the other. It can't be both. Or there, there is no third choice. Right? So that's the second step. Yeah. 
you have to buy that. that premise, you have to convince yes, you have to convince yourself of that premise before you go on to the third step. The third step is we ask ourselves, is the eye self-existent the way it appears or not? And we look to see how I actually exist. And we start by examining if the I is one and the same as the aggregates. So we just looked at the aggregates and said, okay, it's got to be this or that. Is it this? Is it one with the aggregates? And step four is, if it's not that, this, then it's that. Is it that? And that's how we look at emptiness. Yep. Is it completely separate from the aggregates? So the process, I think process is important. I believe if we, if we If we establish that for sure, okay, I get it. You either have to be completely one with or completely separate from. Then I have to look for it. So is it, is it my body? Is it my finger? Is it this mold that's only mine and nobody else has one? Is it my tattoo? Is <laughs> I, it, I, you, know, <laughs> you know, I mean, we, you mm -hmm. really spend time looking yep. in that. I agree. Does everybody? If you don't understand, we're just planting seeds, so we can go ahead. Does everybody agree with that statement? Okay. How does the eye appear to the innate eye grasping mind? Okay. The eye appears to the innate eye grasping mind is analogous to the way the reflected image of the face appears to, the fa to be a face. It is a false eye. It appears to be truly existent. It appears to be independent and totally existent from its own side for a very short time. Then it get mixed up, gets mixed up with something else, with the appearance of shapes and colors or the collection of the aggregates. And that's when you start to grasp at it. And it says, first there is a moment of valid mind that has the appearance of true existence. It thinks, for example, I am walking. The moment after that, the innate eye grasping arises. The continuity of that valid mind does not become the innate eye grasping. Rather, the next moment the innate eye grasping arises, grasping at the eye as existing the way it appears. The mind apprehending the conventionally existent eye and the innate eye grasping are difficult to distinguish. So if you don't understand, nobody, I mean, people have to look, you have to take years and years and years and years to look at it and try to figure out what's the eye grasping and what's the conventionally existent eye. Is everybody totally confused now? I know I am. Good, thank you. <laughs> Okay, shall we go on? Hey, venerable children can explain this a heck of a lot better than I can. Okay. So, question number six. Some people say that freedom from all conceptuality is liberation. Is this correct? Why or why not? I gotta know. That's the answer to the first one. <laughs> the point is that the belief is that if we just give up thinking, we would be free of cyclic existence, and that's what's incorrect. Okay. Any kind of thought, any kind of consciousness, because we have to rely on thinking in order to understand the ultimate nature. 
-hmm. It is not correct. We live our lives in concepts. We need conceptuality in order to look at and study at and study and understand emptiness. First, we get an inferential understanding of emptiness, then a realization. Venerable children talked about wrong views. One is that some people think that the eye-grasping mind is a conceptual mind, so that we just have to stop all concepts and then we're free. Just stop thinking at all because all of our conceptual minds are grasping at a truly existent object. That's incorrect. Not all conceptual minds are grasping at a truly existent object. It's true that self-grasping is a conceptual mind that grasps at a truly existent object. That needs to be eliminated. But not all conceptual minds are erroneous consciousnesses. They may have the false appearance, but they're not erroneous consciousnesses. In order to realize emptiness, first we have to realize it conceptually and with an inferential cognizer understand it. To learn what emptiness is, to learn what emptiness is, to learn about emptiness, we have to use conception. Even though later on we want to be able to go beyond conception and realize emptiness directly. That's one wrong view to refute. That a realization of emptiness is just getting rid of all conceptual awareness. Conceptualizations whatsoever. Yeah. Okay. This is, I think, where Guy Millen says, if this were so, then a hammer blow to the head should be sufficient to bring you to awakening. Yes. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> okay. Question number seven. What? It's number 16. It's number seven on my piece of paper. <laughs> Don't confuse me. I'm confused enough as it is. Yeah, it's merely labeled. <laughs> it's merely labeled, yeah. Okay, which comes first, the appearance of the aggregates or the appearance of the eye? Which comes first, grasping the aggregates as truly existent or grasping the eye as truly existent? The appearance of the aggregates comes first. Grasping the aggregates as truly existent comes first. So we're gonna, I'm going to tell you what Venable Chodron says. The appearance of the eye must depend on the aggregates. The eye does not appear without the aggregates. When the aggregates appear to us, they appear truly existent. That appearance of the aggregates as truly existent quickly induces a self-grasping that grasps the aggregates as truly existent. Upon this basis, the notion of a truly existent eye arises in our mind. Thus, without the appearance of the aggregates, the eye grasping does not arise. Right. So. No light, no mirror, no face. That's right. Right? Yeah. It works. It's the same thing. If you don't have a mirror, you can't have a reflection in a mirror. Question number eight, 17. Why do we meditate on the emptiness of the eye before the emptiness of the aggregates? So they say. It's easier to see that the eye is dependent upon the aggregates, that the eye is designated in dependence upon the aggregates. Seeing the aggregates as dependent is more difficult. Basically, what they're saying is, you see a person, 
you see their aggregates and then you label I on it. Right? You hear a voice. The voice is an one a part of the aggregate. It's part of the, you know, it's a, an object. And then you label I upon it to the other person. That's what they're saying. First we meditate on the selflessness of the person, our own I. Then we meditate on the selflessness of phenomena, our physical and mental aggregates, as well as other phenomena. The reason for this reverse sequence is twofold. First, when we contemplate how the I exists, it is comparatively easy to see that it is dependent on its basis of designation, the aggregates. After all, to identify a person, we have to perceive one or more of, of her aggregates. We know Venerable Choni is there because we see her body. And we know Venerable Tarpa is there because we hear her voice. It's not difficult to see that the person depends on the aggregates, that it is designated in dependence on the aggregates. Thus the person, the I, is not autonomous, it's dependent. On the other hand, seeing the aggregates as dependent is more difficult. It is not as easy to see that they depend on their basis of designation. That's one reason. Second reason is the view of the personal identity is the primary cause of psychic existence. It is very important to get rid of it first in order to free ourselves from samsara. Self-grasping of the person, the view of the personal identity is the primary cause of psychic existence. Although all forms of self-grasping must be refuted to attain liberation, the one that is the worst in terms of being the basis for the designation of afflictions, and thus the creation of polluted karma, is the self-grasping of the person. Thus negating it first is of great importance. In short, although there is no difference in the object of negation or its subtlety with respect to the self-grasping of persons and the self-grasping of phenomenon, we begin my meditation on emptiness by negating the self of persons. Okay. It just says that you gotta do it the right way first. We're getting there. We're getting there. Last question. And it actually relates to what we just talked about. If as long as there is grasping the aggregates as truly existent, grasping the eye as truly existent will arise. That was the paragraph number thirty-five. How is it possible to realize the emptiness of the eye before the emptiness of the aggregates? Yep, we just said that we meditate on we meditate on the emptiness of the eye before the emptiness of the aggregates. But the verse 35 said, as long as there is grasping the aggregates as truly existent, grasping the eye as truly existent will arise. So how is it possible to realize the emptiness of the eye before the emptiness of the aggregates? That was what the verse said. Anybody? Any? Basically, let me go to it. Is it because you, uh, that's my guess. Go ahead, great. That would be a good guess. We should no longer be grasping at the aggregates. Basically what it's saying, 
is that when it's talking about, um, it says literally, it seems that as long as you have the true grasping of the aggregates, you will have true grasping of the eye. Literally, it seems that as long as you don't realize the non-existence of the conceived object of self-grasping of the aggregates, you cannot realize the non-existence of the conceived object of the eye-grasping. But it wouldn't be right to explain it literally this way because first, you have to realize the selflessness of persons, which involves realizing the non-existence of the conceived object of the true grasping of the eye. It has to do with the difference between innate grasping and acquired grasping. What this verse means is that you have to get rid of the acquired grasping of the eye, of the aggregates, before you can realize the, em the inherent emptiness of the eye. Okay, acquired grasping is what? It's, it's what you learn in this lifetime. The innate grasping at the eye is what you take from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime. So it's going to be a lot easier to get rid of the acquired grasping, which you learned in this lifetime, than it is to get rid of the innate grasping. So this verse is saying you have to get rid of that acquired grasping of the aggregates before you can realize the innate grasping of the eye. And that's what it's saying. But it also, I mean, I don't know if this is right or not, but what, what, when you said that, it was like, oh, right, because the object also is not the aggregate. The, the, the object you're looking at is not the aggregate, it's the eye. Right? I mean, that's, that's one of the... the we, we meditate on the getting rid of the aggregates and then the eye. Not getting rid of the aggregates, but what, what, right. what, what, what you're... Uh, even though it's the appearance of the appearance. aggregates that makes the eye arise, the object mm -hmm. of Right. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. And what you're looking for is the eye, not the aggregates. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, hello. Uh, Heather wrote, I can read a question. Right there. Um, there are different levels of grasping. In this verse, it means the acquired grasping is there. We can mm -hmm. realize the emptiness of the person. We have to have the gross acquired grasping subdued so that there is space in the mind to realize the selflessness of the person. You have to reduce acquired grasping. Then you have the inferential realization of emptiness of person. And if you take that same inferential reasoning and apply it to the aggregates, then you can have an inferential realization of the emptiness of the aggregates. But you still have at that time the grasping at the aggregates and the grasping at the self when you are out of a meditation session. Yeah. You have to get rid of the gross acquired grasping of the aggregates in order for you to be able to move forward in your practice of realizing the emptiness of the eye. In other words, if you think that the aggregates are truly existent, then you won't go looking for the emptiness of the aggregates or the emptiness of the eye. To realize the selflessness of the person, you must not be thinking that the aggregates are truly existent. So can we have like a common, what's the, what, would it, what would the mind be thinking between an acquired grasping and the innate? What would, it, what would we learn that's different than what we bring in? I don't understand what you're saying. 
what you're asking. Well, it says you have to subdue or eliminate the acquired grasping. What does the acquired grasping, how does it perceive the self that's different than what the innate that comes from light to light, how it's perceiving the self? The innate. Permanent, heartless, unitary. Yeah. The acquired is where you, she said it, your philosophies, your religion, whatever you brought in this life. Those are levels of, that we have to... Right, it's the first level. Those are the course levels that mm -hmm. we're trying exactly. to subdue. I didn't know that they were acquired. I thought that they were in as well. The coarser versions of mm -hmm. itself. The permanent part was unitary. Independent. It's acquired. Or acquired. Or acquired. It's like the soul. It's the soul. Yeah. And that's all I have. Nice job. This is not the topic of the retreat. <laughs> this is this is a teaching that had been going on for a couple of years now, and we are in the middle of it. So. But we're going to start to see how this misconception gets us into all sorts of trouble. Why we need to purify? Because yes. We get into yes. We're going to talk about the trouble we get into because of this. Talk about how to get out of the trouble. Get out of the trouble. Yeah. How we get in and how we get out. Okay. There, is there anything else anybody would like to say? Thank you. 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 I believe it. Who am I to argue with venerable children if it's on, it's on Kappa? Come on. <laughs> Anything more than what is merely designated by conception is the object of negation. Yeah, but it's very deep. I like it. Yeah, it's very. It definitely gives you something to think about.